Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday night. Got a big week. Shabbos Hagol this week. <clears throat> I put all that together. So let me see if we can dispatch the podcast this week quicker. Uh, tonight's uh, sponsored, this week's uh, bio, are my good friends Levy and Lolly Friedman. If you know who that is at all, you'll understand she's a granddaughter, great-granddaughter of Ari Levin, and she, I know she wants me to do that. And so that's what I'm going to do tonight. Uh, the famous Ari, Ari Levin, the Tzadik Yushalayim and all that. Now, I got to tell you, I never really wanted to do them in the past. Uh, I think everybody knows this already. Uh, whenever anybody knows about Ari Levin, they got from the book. Tzadik in our time. Uh, at least as far as I know. And we're going to add a little here and there. But now I reconsidered. Not simply because I don't know why I want to, but because, first of all, my kids, I don't think no one better even. I think maybe it's a generation thing. If you're my age and my generation came at that time, so he was such a shame dubber because of that book. But now, you know, and there's an inflation with Sadiqim. You know, everybody's writing a book about uh, another guy with a white beard. And, they all, and it's not all the same. They make it sound the same. And the magazines, my goodness, every week on the magazine cover is another person who's a tzaddik. We said, all of them, on the greatest time, is you know, supply and demand. It lo- lowers the, the value when there's so many uh, sublime tzaddikim running around. It makes it hard to tell when somebody's a real thing. So on the one hand, maybe some of the people listening to this will be from a younger generation and won't know so well. Although I'm going to direct them to the book as well. And also... Maybe I can offer uh, something of a historical perspective, which would be a little bit different. Because that's basically what I can do. And uh, context and perspective. Mm. So let's plunge into this. We're talking today about Rabbi Ari Levin, Ari Levin, who was, uh, now listen closely, he's not a big rabbi. In other words, he wasn't a rabbi of a city, like we talk about a lot of times. Av Bezin, wasn't a Rosh Hashiva. He was a mashkich in a, in a school, in elementary school. Uh, he wasn't uh, a favorite safer, you know, of Lumdus or Shalson Tuba, that's what blew the world away. Or, you know, wasn't a poet, a darshan. You know, it doesn't fit the usual pattern. So so, so what is he, right? Why am I talking about him? Is it Sadiq? Well, aren't they all Sadiq? No, but he specialized, you know. The poet specialized in poetry. He's other things as well. The Lamdan specialized in Lamdan. He's other things as well. Now in this case, specialized in tzaddik. I don't think I've ever done anybody like that. You understand? Excuse me. Furthermore, and again, listen very closely. I cannot think of anybody else that was uh, revered among the Fromen and Nafrum. I spoke about the chief of England who got big traction, you know, among Jews and non-Jews, and that is true. Here I'm speaking about something different. <coughs> 
you know and I know, in the last 100, 200 years, the Jewish people have come powerfully split. So much so, there's like two different groups. It's sad, but it's fact. And what's Hashem, one group is not in the other. The people are great people in one group and not great in the other. Go tell a non-from person about Roshach. Matter of fact, go tell a non-from person about Lubavitcher Rebbe. You know, they don't don't understand that. I mean, they might nod their head and paw, you know. But why would they be able to understand it? It's understandable. And therefore, you're not going to find somebody emerges as a saint or folk hero from the from group that ends up in the non-from group. And vice versa. You could have a very fine Jew or saintly people. What was that guy in the Holocaust, uh, Leo Beck, you know, in, the, in Theresienstadt? And uh, was a reformed rabbi, you know, did, did a lot of uh, good things in the war. You never hear about him in the from world because he reformed. It's as good as it is. It's what it is. In the case of Ari Levin, at least in Israel, in the state of Israel, where you have the sharp divide also between the Chilonim and the Datim and the Haredim, he's the only one I know that uh, uh, became like a, a hero, you know, when the from and not from. That's extremely unusual. Extremely unusual. Nobody's anything bad to say about Ari Levin. How could you say anything bad about him? And that kind of speaks volumes. Now, it's sad I can only come up with one name. You know, but still, it's remarkable. So who are we talking about? Arlen was a, a literary yid born in back, you know, in, Lithuania, in white Russia. And all the little, you know, earlier details don't matter. The bottom line is, he was born in 1885. So he's growing up in the 1890s. At a certain age, goes off to yeshiva, as from boys did. Not many, but they did. <clears throat> And he's in the literary yeshiva world of the late 1800s, early 1900s. <clears throat> so, I remember he was in um, the, this is Alma Meltzer, what's it called? Slots. This place. Now, but he ends up in Volusian. Now, I'm talking about Volusian round two. The original yeshiva Volusian was closed down at the time of the Tziv. And then a number of years, and then the Tziv died, and Chaim Brisky went away, and then they reopened the yeshiva under the Tziv's son-in-law, Paul Shapiro, Paul Volusian. It wasn't what it was before, but it was something. And so our hero was learning there. And I think if things would have been regular, he would have stayed, like so many others, in the Yeshiva of Lithuania. I guess he eventually gets Mikhail, I learned very well. Um, whether or not you get a job depends on who you know, who you married, this and that and the other. I don't know how that would have worked out. But it doesn't matter, because when he was 20 years old, which is not old, or not, uh, 19 years old actually, the Russian-Japanese war broke out. The Russians were drafting everybody. It was a cannon fodder. You know, the Russians were badly beaten. They sent men to their deaths by the thousands. You know, they screwed it up. Who wants to get drafted in the Russian army? Raise your hand if you would like boot camp. Now, raise your hand if you like Russian boot camp, you know. Okay? And Russian boot camp in the Russian-Japanese war. So, anybody who had a brain got out of there if they could. I'm sure many of the people who are listening to this podcast if you go back to who your grandparents, great-grandparents, or whatever, you know what I mean, way back when, it wouldn't surprise me if they fled Russia or wherever it was because of the draft of the Russian army. No, it was Poland, Russia, Lithuania, you know, white Russia, and all that stuff. Particularly during wartime. Because you're going to be dead meat, and they couldn't care less about you, and the people that you're fighting for hate you. The Russians were anti-Semitic. Why should you fight for them? Aside from the questions of, uh, you know, Yiddishkeit and so forth. Now, what do you do? So our hero ran away to Israel, Eretz Israel. Many fled to England, to America, places like that. 
you know, this was very much unspiritual place, America. You know that it was in the a frenzied era of the materialism. People were getting off the boat not being religious. You know, we know all that. And here's somebody, obviously, very firmly wanted to live a spiritual life. And so, he made all the out to Israel in 1905, which is a very interesting time. And he stayed for the rest of his life. So from 1905 to 1970, he died in 69, okay? So what's that, 65 years almost. So if you want to know why you live in is, you're talking about Yerushalayim of the first half of the 20th century. Uh, the first years are under the Turks, then under the British, and then under the State of Israel. That's his life. Under the Turks, well, it's very interesting. Palestine used to be part of the Turkish Empire. I think people know that. Part of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. The Turks conquered it in the 1500s, early 1500s. And that meant, and if you're a Jew living in the Turkish Empire, you could really go from one place to the other uh, because it's all one big border. And if you're Sephardi, so you can travel a place if you wish to, you know, from Istanbul or Greece or one of those places. Remember, the Turkish Empire one time ran all the way up to Budapest. It was big. So you could go, if you wouldn't move to Israel, you could, it's no problem. By the time you get to the 1800s, all kind of interesting changes kicked in. For one thing, Turkey got very weak. Therefore, Balkarkham, Shlobot, Tavos, and they had to kiss up to the European powers. And basically, for a long time, they relied on the British and the French to help them against the Russians. And they needed good PR. And so the long and the short of it is that they treated the Jews better in the 19th century than they had previously. It's a long and complicated subject, and now's not time to go into it. I would simply say, particularly from the middle of the 1800s on, 1850 or so, um, if you were a European Jew and you wanted to move to Palestine, uh, first of all, you could do so. Second of all, it was a lot easier because it's a steamboat and rail, excuse me, and railroads and things like that. It's not like in time of only going, you had to walk or whatever. And uh, finally, if you got to Palestine and you were a citizen, you're under the, the rishos of your consul, not ambassador, but consul. So you could be under the British consul, the French consul, the German, the Austrian, the Russian, and so forth. And the Turks, you know, if they wanted to, they could treat you bad, but they didn't. And so to live in the late 1800s and the early 1900s before the First World War in Eretz Yisrael was a very interesting experience because the government is Turkish, but the place is full of non-Turks and is also full of non-Turkish Jews. And um, all I can say is, that particular Yerushalayim, the population ballooned. And this one, the Jews attained a real majority. And so Rabbi Levin came over there to Yerushalayim. It's a place of about 30,000 Jews. That's a lot. Most of them were Jews like himself from Jews who in the 1800s and early 1900s were, were moving to Israel uh, for positive and negative reasons, but they're ultimately positive reasons. When I say positive and negative reasons, let's say you're running away from the Russian army, but why don't you move to America? Terrence says you want a little bit more Yiddishkeit. So the negative reason is you're afraid of being drafted in the Russian army. The positive reason is you want to live a fuller Jewish life, and you're taking advantage of this push in life to say, you know, the heck with it. If i got to leave, I'm going to leave. I might as well move to Yerushalayim. It's like the Ramban after the debate. The king told him, you got to get out of the country because the church is out to get you. Ram figured, if i got to get out of the country, I might as well move to Israel. The chief rabbi of Yerushalayim at the time that Rabbi came there was Shmuel Salanter. And it's famous that he was, it was there from like 1841, like 50, 60 years of the Rav of the uh, uh, Litvish, let's put it that way, in Yerushalayim. And uh, uh, the official community 
and um, he had asthma, you know, back in the 1830s or 40s, and the doctor says, you've got to move away from northern Russia, from Lithuania, and move to Italy, <clears throat> near a better Mediterranean climate. He said, the heck with it, if i got to move to <clears throat> Mediterranean climate, move to Israel, move to Yerushalayim. So, um, the long and the short of it is that the Jewish community grew quite considerably in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. I'm not talking about Zionism now. I'm talking about people who went there just down Zion. Now, it's also true that during this time, parallel to what I'm talking about, arose the Zionist movement. First the Chobbe in the 1880s, and then the Herzl Zionist movement in the 1890s. <clears throat> that is true. They're totally separate from that. And what they call the Yeshuvah Yashan. These are people who moved to Israel, especially Yerushalayim. They're not Zionists, you know, in, in, the, in the sense of belonging to the Zionist party. <clears throat> most of them, not all, but most of them were from. And they moved to Israel because they want to live a full Jewish life in Israel. Um, even I would even go to the point of saying that big rabbis and chashva from Jews, when they reached a certain level of affluence, they already started thinking at that time, in the 1800s, you know, I'll buy a house in Yerushalayim and I'll move there. Maybe when I'm older, <clears throat> maybe this situation, that situation, and they did. And so, when Ayuvin moved to Yerushalayim and got married, and he's a young guy, 20 years old, it was a very interesting place. Obviously, you had the old city, you had Meisharim. You already started to have outside of Meisharim places, Gula, whatever. You saw more Jews are coming all the time. And I repeat, there was nothing political about what I'm talking about. It wasn't a Zionist thing per se. I would even go so far as to say Yerushalayim represented one thing, and Tel Aviv and the Moshevot represented the Zionist thing. It's a complicated story. But there you have it. And so our hero lived the rest of his life in Yerushalayim. He wasn't part of the Tel Aviv scene. He's part of the Yerushalayim scene. On the other hand, the question, if you're living in Yerushalayim, in 1905, 1915, and all that is, so what is your position on Zionism? In other words, do you want a Jewish state? Now, when the Turks were there, it wasn't happening. And I can even go so far as to say that if Turkey had uh, not done the stupid thing of entering the First World War on the losing side, they would still be controlling Israel today. And the, without boring you with all the details, even though some people say they want to be bored with the deal, but I know most of you don't, as a result of the Balkan Wars of 1912-1913, <clears throat> which I'll not go into, the Turks <clears throat> were pretty much kicked out of Europe, and they reoriented themselves towards the Muslim world, and they started tightening up the Islamic business, and that wouldn't have been good for the Jews. Okay? That wouldn't have been good for the Jews. Now, um, nevertheless, in the years we're talking about, they didn't crack down on the Jews, and therefore, it, it, it was just interesting to live in 1905, 1906, 1910, 1912, 13 in Yerushalayim. You see Jews visiting from all over the world. They did. Uh, you know, you remember Rachel Strauss? Um, the Strauss brothers, that's Macy's, visited Palestine just for the heck of it. Uh, you know, millionaire New York Jews in 1912, I think it was. And, uh, you know, uh, and then they returned home. One brother said, I want to stay a few weeks longer. You know, I like uh, seeing Jerusalem before I come back. And Nathan Strauss, he stayed behind. He missed the Titanic. <clears throat> the other brother and his wife went on the Titanic. They went down. So you see, even rich New York Jews were already starting to think, you know, check out Palestine. Not everybody's exactly a Zionist. <clears throat> Interesting time. Now, as far as the front community goes, they're under tremendous pressure, as they saw it, culturally speaking. 
because the roots of the Jewish community of the Talmudim and the Vilna Gaon, at that time there's no Limudi Chol. As the 19th century proceeds, there is Limudi Chol, and there's a need for it. <clears throat> or am I wrong? You see? This became a Chalukah Deus. You know, nobody's going to grow big in learning if they take off time for Limudi Chol. On the other hand, if you can't read, can't write, all the rest of it, you end up economically, uh, you know, uh, poor and uh, impoverished and with no uh, future. And not everybody's a big common call. The same fights we have now. You're saying, what do you do? You know, well, what do you do? In uh, in the intense center of the Yishev Yashan, they turned very anti-modern uh, with different degrees because they saw all this as, um, what shall I say, introducing, uh, you know, um, Ideas that will undermine the Yiddishkeit. <clears throat> Although when the came there in the early 1900s, they already started saying, you know, this is not working for everybody, and we need at least, as we would say today for the Shvachar kids, some kind of Limud whole situation uh, within the kosher uh, parameters. <clears throat> and meanwhile, the non-firm were setting up schools everywhere. Then make a long story short, as I say, uh, they start, what they did was they brought in the Yekis from Frankfurt, you understand? Term their hearts, guys, and they say, listen, for those that need Limure Chol, you know, you guys be the teachers and set up the schools and all the rest of it, because, you know, we trust you on the front end, but for our better guys, we want to keep them away from that. Now, uh, our hero moved to Yerushalayim, he was 20 years old, he learned there, as he had been learning before in Yeshiva in Europe, you had Lithuanian type yeshivas in Yerushalayim. Um, he, I remember he was Makor to Rabchaim. <coughs> this seems song. Remember I told you before rich people moved to Israel? Chaim Berlin, uh, <coughs> not to school, the man. Rabbi Chaim Berlin, the son of the Tziv, who at one time had been the chief rabbi in Moscow of the Jewish community there, was not a poor man. And uh, he had some disappointments in life. But because he wasn't poor, he moved to Israel in the last years of his life. And so. Uh, you know, I learned, learned. I remember he got smicha from him or something like that. And you know, he he was totally integrated into the uh, Litvish Yeshiva world of Jerusalem. Okay, fine. Then he got married to a girl from Yichas, although she didn't have any money. And uh, one of the things about Ari Lynn that's going to make him uh, unusual is he and his wife clearly declared war on Gashmis. <laughs> you know, you don't find too many people like that. You know. Uh, the only way to defeat the gates of horror materialism is to defeat the gates of materialism. It's easier said than done. Most of us <laughs> surrender on sight, you know. Uh, he became famous. He didn't want to live a life of poverty. Uh, you know, you read the book, there are many stories. Now, um, and you, I don't think he was in love with poverty. I think he realized that, uh, you know, once you start eating candy, you get fat. So once you start getting you know, getting into the money, you get corrupted. That's what it is. Now, uh, it takes a strong personality to be like that, and it takes a strong wife to, to you know, to, to go along with that. But that's what he did. Now, at that time, as part of this challenge at Haskell and all the rest of it, something very interesting happened in Yerushalayim. Actually, at the time when Shmuel Salanto showed up in the 1840s, they wanted to change the system. They made the Eitzchayim. You understand what which means to have instead of a bunch of like in the old country, do you have? Do you know what chinuch was like once upon a time? It was terrible, you know. And anybody can set himself up as a rebbe if you can persuade the parents to send them to you. They send them. It's like a daycare, you know. 
You send it. You send. You send the parents to you. You use. You you do. It's no such thing as licensing. And so if I'm a rebbe, if I'm able to, I gotta make parnasa. So I'll have kids in the room. Maybe I'll teach them in my bedroom if I don't have a big house. Uh, and maybe in the kitchen. And one boy's twelve. One boy's fifteen. One boy's seven. Because I needed whatever customer I can get. I can just imagine what it's like. And so in Yerushalayim, he said, no, we're going to make a school with grades. <clears throat> totally from. No. It's going to call it Yitzchayim. You have elementary division, uh, what we would call high school division, post-high school division. They did do it. This is the old Yeshav. In other words, the concept, they call it Talmud Torah. In the old country, Talmud Torah was for the kids who couldn't afford private tutors. But Yerushalayim, they wanted Talmud Torah to be what you and I are used to today, which is from public school. What do we have in America? The day schools are the from public schools. You get it? Agree? The day schools are from public schools, for better or worse. That already represents a step in the direction of organization of the Chinuch. You're talking about Tarmasur, you're talking about the, some idea of curriculum, some idea of, you know, grades. And so he, after he got smicha, he got involved, he was able to get into this. I think he spent the rest of his life in the Yitzchayim school, in, uh, in the old Yerushalayim, in the very heart, the epicenter of the Yiddishkeit life. He uh, was an elementary school teacher, and he was a mashkiach of the boys. <clears throat> and that means that he had to have the right personality. There are many stories you can read in the book, how he was uh, good. Just na- He didn't take any education courses. He was naturally good with the kids, you know, because, let's face it, uh, kids in a certain age are vildechais. In Eretz Yisrael, they're ten times vildechais, especially in those years. It took a person with a with a gift for understanding what you, you and I today would call child psychology without taking any college courses to be able naturally to uh, blend in with the kids. And that's what he did. So that was his career. Now, if that's all that he did, it'd be nice and fine, but we wouldn't be talking about him, right? Um, even though he lived in very interesting times because it's 1905 he came there and nine years later came the First World War. As I said, as a result of the First World War, Palestine became a war zone, and it's the Turks. Now, people like Ari Levin were not Turkish citizens. They're actually enemy aliens they're, you know, under the Russians. And if it was the Turks themselves, they'd kill them uh, or, or destroy them, because uh, that is what the Turks did in the First World War. I don't know if you're familiar with the Armenian massacres, but that's exactly what the Turks did. From their perspective, get rid of the Jews, and it's all us. You know, it's a good. And they didn't mind killing men, women, and children. As it happened, the Russian runs in funny ways. The Turks were allied to, in the First World War, were two teams, A and B. One's called the uh, Entente, the Triple Entente, and the other one's called the Central Powers. You will perhaps remember this from high school if you paid attention, or you can Google it in a second. So two teams fought each other. So one team was England, France, Russia. The opposing team was Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Turkey. You get it? Out of the few people inside, but that's the acre. Okay? Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Turkey. Or Bulgaria, whatever. So the Turks relied on German support to be able to fight off their enemies. And let me tell you something. Even though the Turks are somewhat primitive, all the rest of the day are tough fighters. And they gave the British a bunch of bloody noses. The British had some military disasters at the hands of the Turks. So they were no joke. And they're tough. So why did they kill the Jews? Because the German Jews in Germany and the Austrian Jews in Austria were able to influence the Kaiser, Kaiser Franz Josef in Vienna and Kaiser Wilhelm 
in in Berlin, their governments, to tell the Turks to leave the Jews alone. That interesting. No, that was a time when Germany and Austria were, if I can use the term pro-Jewish, that might be a little too strong, but maybe it's not. And because they didn't want to tick off the Germans, so they didn't kill them and, 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 and destroy the Jews. So people like Ari Levin went through the years of the First World War, 1914, 1915, 1916, 1917, 1918, not citizens, they're actually citizens of the enemy, um, but they weren't expelled. Uh, life was tough. There was a lot of starvation. I remember he lost some children from the starvation. A lot of people lost kids from the starvation first of all. The malnutrition was terrible. And you know, kids, if they don't eat, it's terrible. So I know, I remember he lost some girls or something like this. Right, for Schlegger lost people. It's, it's, it was a terrible time. People don't realize how bad, um, how bad the First World War was. I've said it many times. I actually did a, a series on this uh, a couple years ago. It's, I wonder if it's on my YouTube channel. If not, I'll put it up there one time. It's an Orthodox Jews in the First World War. It's fascinating. But anyway, living in Jerusalem was not fun. Typhus, all kind of terrible things. Um, and, by the way, and it's during the war because somebody dying. That's when he got his job as a mashkir in the yeshiva there. Um, and then, in 1917, you know, international politics turned out in such a way that the British conquered Israel. Okay? They entered Jerusalem, in, I think, in November of 1917. And within less than a year, they conquered most of Israel and went on into Syria. This is the famous General Allenby, okay? This is the, the campaign of, of 1917-1918. Again, I'm not going to give you such a long business, but that's what it was. So then, it was a big uh, Yeshua for the Jews. Because number one, now they're under the British. The British are much more enlightened. They're going to treat the Jews better. On the other hand, it got very complex. Because as a result of all the stuff that was going to the First World War, the Zionist movement came out empowered. Because that's when the British issued the Balfour Declaration. Again, if you're interested in the subject, you go to the YouTube channel, I have long stuff on that. And the bottom line was, the British government, and later the United Nations of that, the League of Nations, listen closely, recognized the Zionist movement as the official representative of the Jewish people. In law. So that meant that after the First World War was over, on the one hand, now there was no more starvation, and the British came in with a better administration, and the sanitation was improved, and the roads were built up, blah, 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 all that is true. Me'ida Giza, you understand? Uh, when the British want to do something Jewish, they operate through the Zionist movement. Now this uh, caused big tensions in places like Yerushalayim. Uh, as you know, I would say like this, it split into hard Zionists, middle of the road, and then the, the uh, Haredim, of which some were extreme and some were just stum, you know, Haredim. It's, it's, it's complicated, you know. And uh, the reason I say it is, it's sad because all these people, all the people I'm talking about were from, but they're profoundly divided on political questions, <clears throat> right? Profoundly divided on political questions. This is Rechaim Zanafeld versus Ruff Cook, <clears throat> to use dumb language. Now, um, our hero, like many others, didn't see anything wrong with Zionism, provided it doesn't turn out bad. Notice he was not in principle opposed, as far as I'm aware, like Satmer, to a Jewish state in and of itself. It should just be a from Jewish state. That was more the Litvish type of, of uh, Mahalach. Let it be a from state. Now, uh, the problem is, the Zionist movement, especially in those years, 
was an anti-from kick, particularly in those years. And I'll tell you exactly why. It's not simply prejudice. Because after all, the from were prejudiced against the anti-from, the anti-from prejudice against the from. It's simply like this. Here you have uh, Israel. If you open up the doors and the place fills up with a million chassidim, they will rule the country. And they'll azur Zionism. And they'll turn the country into who knows what. And they'll be opposed to the Jewish state on a hundred reasons. And in, and that'll hurt the Jewish people as they saw it. So what the Zionist movement wanted to do was to say like this. We want an artificial population growth. We want to pick the people who are allowed into Israel. And we'll pick the people of our type. Mostly not from a little bit Mizrahi type. A little, little, little bit to a good type. And that's it. And they were able to do it. So for the 1920s and 1930s, and even into the 40s, immigration was artificially choked off by the Zionist movement together with the British. You hear what I said? This is particularly true in the 20s. It's less true in the 30s, but it was, it was still kind of was true. And um, the numbers who were allowed into Palestine and things like that were quite small. Jews, I'm talking about. And they wanted to make sure most of them would be the type of people who would work on kibbutz or whatever, because that way they could spread a Jewish presence all over the country. What they didn't want is, sure, you'll double the Jewish population of Jerusalem, so everybody live in Mea Sharm and Gula, and maybe a few in Bnei Brak, <clears throat> and that's it. Who rule the country? Let the Arabs rule the country, as long as I have, you know, Gula, Mea Sharm, and a few other places, Old City, as long as I can go to the Koto, what do I need to stay for? You know, that, that attitude. So these, uh, again, items were very embittering. On the other hand, there were many people, and these would be the people, these would be the frummies who supported Rav Cook. You get what I just said? This is the frummy supporter of Cook. <clears throat> you look at them in pictures, they're dressed with, uh, they're not strimals exactly, because they're not Hasidic most of them, although he had Hasidic followers too. But, you know, they're Yisho Yashan. They dress in the old school, and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And yet they say, I like the Rav Cook approach, which is not exactly Zionist, because Rav Cook didn't approve of the trafe stuff that they were doing. But on the other hand, it's it's looking strategically which I think we can sort of see nowadays with a different eye. Uh, history is always changing. That's a famous word. That's called your past is always changing. You know, from our perspective today, in the year 2021, if I were to say it was the destiny of Ben-Gurion to set up a country which will contribute hundreds of millions of dollars to ultra-right-wing yeshivas, <laughs> to, to Punavish, uh, you'd say, well, you're crazy. No, you wouldn't. You see, that's how it's unfolded. Believe me, the Chilonim are going crazy over this. Elections are being held every 10 minutes in which the secular parties are bemoaning this. And they're not wrong from their perspective. And, uh, you know, uh, and Yeshiva guys don't have to go to the army and uh, the, the state pays for the base Yaakovs and everything like that. This is not what we had in mind. So if you're a cook type, you say like this. In the short run, these people mean bad. But I'm sure, Elohim chashavu letovo, l'man amrov, that this is going to work out in Hashem's plan, you know, in some way, and it'll, it'll be good. But meanwhile, let's get a large Jewish presence over here. Now, I'm trivializing what's a very complex matter, but I have no choice. There's a podcast, you know, you can't go into details over here. But I'm just saying that Rari Levin lived after the First World War for the next 30 years, which was the British, but also at the time of profound period among the Jews in many ways. Now, I would say. I would call your attention to two periods, two divisions. The from versus not from. That's one. And the second one, and the, uh, actually I'll call your attention to three. 
The firm versus the not firm, what we say today would be, you know, religious versus chilani, because the chilani develops in those years. That's number one. <clears throat> then, among the from, so um, you have three approaches, the Mizrahi, the Agoda, and then the Torah Karta. I think you understand what that means. You know, those who are willing to totally cooperate with the Zionist enterprise, hoping that, as I said before, whatever the Chilonim have in mind, it's going to turn out in the end, you know, to be a from thing. Uh, that's, that's that. Then you had the Agoda types who were trying to figure out what to do. They didn't feel comfortable with the Zionists. On the other hand, they weren't in the Torah card. Then you had the Torah card to say, anything that designed we we better under the Turks. We'd be better under the Arabs. The Torah card said, like, let's bring in King Abdullah now, make this a Palestinian state and act with it. Who needs all these non-from Jews coming over here? We don't want them. You see, you know, so opinions were extremely, you know, sharp. But then there's a third period, and that is among the Zionists. I don't know if you know this. Many people don't know this. There was a giant split in the Zionist movement after the First World War uh, between the regular Zionists and the revisionists. To use simple words, between Ben-Gurion versus Jabotinsky, or between Weizmann versus Jabotinsky. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If you know what I'm talking about, again, it's kind of hard to explain you know, on one uh, st- uh, standing one foot, but the regular Zionist movement was headed by Weizmann and Ben-Gurion. And they said, we have to cooperate with the British. And as they said before, we want a Gucci Aliyah. We were bringing a few people every year, the right type of people, to build up a state, strong, healthy, non-from, you know, Chalutzim. We have to establish Kibbutzim in the Galil and Jewish presence all over the country. And anyway, we need a, a secular state. When the state comes, what are you going to do? You know, have the place run by Breslovers or something like that? You know, they say, that's crazy. So we need, you know, a normal people, as they saw it. Um, on the other hand, they were not talking about making a Jewish state in the near future. They were talking about, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years down the line. Uh, it's interesting, you know, if you read closely, you'll see that they, uh, it was a complex subject, Weitzman particularly, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow, manana, manana. Now, they didn't know in 1920s what you and I know, which is they had no time, Hitler was around the corner, move now. Well, there was another Zionist leader, Jabotinsky, uh, Vladimir Zev Jabotinsky. All these people were atheists, okay? All of them. And Jabotinsky, for a whole bunch of reasons, said this whole problem is wrong. There could be some Hitler guy coming around the corner. We need a Jewish state now. You understand? I mean, now. And he had all kinds of schemes. They said, I should take over the Zionist movement. And I should follow my Mahalach. We'll go to the British and we say, I guess, listen, tomorrow, open the gates. We bring in a million Jews. I don't care what kind they are. Once you have a rove of the population of Jewish, then the British pull out. Thank you very much. Shalom. Now it's a Jewish state. We'll take over from here. And we'll bring in the millions of Jews from elsewhere. Ah, it'll be economic problems, all the rest of it. We'll work it out. We'll figure it out. You know what I'm saying? That's the Jabotinsky approach. As he said, let them come and sleep on the on the sand or the beaches just to get the bodies here. Now, you and I know, with the hindsight, since the Holocaust came, that he was right. Right? Let's just pretend for a minute that the British, I'm just saying for a second, that the British followed Jabotinsky. And between 1920 and 1930, let's argue for a sake that he brought in a million and a half, two million Jews. Listen, there was a ton of Jews that were really screwed in Lithuania, Poland, Romania. I mean, they were in bad shape because of the anti-Semitism of the government. They were dreaming that they should be able to move to Palestine, a Jewish state, at least there'd be no anti-Semitism, and they'd build a life there. 
Yeah, easily, without question, could have got a million people like that. That's what Jabotinsky said. And once we have a country, so you know how it is, we'll develop as we go along. And, uh, you know, if all the Jews don't move in today, they'll move tomorrow. And if there arises an anti-Semitism, that's what we're here for. So basically, if they would have followed that policy, when Hitler rose to power, the six million, I'm going to use the expression, the six million Jews would have run away and have uh, safety. You understand? Have safety. Because we all know they got killed because they had nowhere to go. Now, I'm exaggerating because some of the Jews were in the USSR when they got out, but you get the general idea. I can't tell you what a big fight this was in the Zionist movement. The two teams formed, A and B, and they hated each other, and it got violent, and so on and so forth. Um, one of the things that emerged out of Jabotinsky culture in the 1930s was Irgun. You get it? They basically said, you can't trust the Ben-Gurion and the Zionist guys. They're, they're traitors to Jewish people. They'll let a Holocaust happen and not do anything about it. Um, we can't rely on them. We need to form a Jewish army of our own, kick the British out, so that we can save the six million Jews before they get killed. Again, I'm simplifying, but that's the basic idea. And for this, Jabotinsky was vilified, and feelings were very bitter. Okay. Now, all during his time, our hero, Slim Yushalai, he's not part of any of this. He himself, uh, he's obviously from the Haredim. Uh, remember, he's a mashkiach in the, in, uh, He's like the, the, I guess you would say, elementary school principal in Eishchayim, the very epicenter of all this. He's obviously a person who lives a life on purpose of Kedusha and Tahara with no interest in money, okay? So that's the, you know, he's Mr. Ruchnius. And um, he and he really was a tzaddik. Um, and he was a, um, let's put it this way, he was a famous Rav Cook, in the best possible reason. He looked at Rav Cook, he said he's all gone, a tzaddik, this, that, and the other. You know, the politics, big deal. But you can't take away from the person. See, that's a very old-fashioned, old-school approach. A person's a great Talmud Chacham and a big tzaddik, and he knows uh, Bavli and, and Zohar and all the rest of it. A person like this is going to get respect no matter what. Uh, on the other hand, there were plenty of people in Yerushalayim, they always have been, even 100, 150 years ago, who are what you call the um, political types, the Mecharche Reeve, uh, they like the Lush and Heart Specialists. Uh, there is today, and there always was then. And this is the crazy world of Yerushalayim. Uh, I might point out that Ari Levin's brother-in-law, his wife's sister, that was Pesa Frank, who is, I'm sure you heard of him. He became the uh, chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, um, a successor, in other words, of, um, of what do you call it, uh, to Rishmul Salanter. And uh, Pesa Frank, the shame dover. He also was a fan of Rav Cook. You know what I'm saying? These are super from people who took the point of view what I just described before, which is, of course, I don't approve of the Zionist trape stuff and the Mechal Shabbos, all the rest of it. But let's build and, and we'll, ch- we'll change it. You understand? Hamorsha Batora Machzir Alamoto. Something like that. You know, the other side was, you guys are dreamers. The, the non from will walk all over you and it'll be dis- you know, you'll be destroyed. It was a, it was a, it's a Machlokas, you know. You, can, you, you might say it's a Machlokas of Shem Shemayim. I would say it easily, if not for the fact I know so much Lush and Heart was going over there a lot of it was personal and petty, but we'll leave it at that. <clears throat> so, um, that's who our hero was. As you know, Rav Cook died in the 30s. Uh, Ari became famous, started to become famous because uh, he undertook, then this under the British, right? He under Which was a lot better than under the Turks. So, uh, he undertook to be the chaplain of the leper colony. You hear what I just said? He's in Talbia. He's a leper colony for leprosy. 
I think he met a Jewish lady. There's a story, and she was crying, and he found out you know, for a child. So in other words, Shalom Manasseh Kabbalah Pras. All these things he did was gratis, uh, really gratis, and uh, eventually to the jails. Okay, so under the British, to the jails. At the time I'm talking in the twenties, leper colonies, leprosy, and the jails are crooks. <laughs> he made a Jew committed a robbery, a burglary, maybe killed somebody. You know, crooks, criminals. So what does what does a chaplain do over there? You go, you're on services, this and the other. But at the end of the day, uh, if you're out of the in, so people, you know, open up to you, because clearly he had this personality, and this is the remarkable part of the book, which was you know not judgmental, and you know it's shocking, because <laughs> the whole world is for, every from person I know is judgmental, right? Are you? I think so. Every from person is judgmental, and and they kind of wear it on the sleeve, or they fight very hard to keep it below the surface. The cure specialists <clears throat> will hide the judgmentalism as a tactic. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody who's really not that way. You're a Jew. You know, some things I agree, some things I don't agree, but I love you as you are. That's a, that's a cliche. You don't hear it too often. You, know, you don't hear somebody really believes it, <clears throat> practice it. And so he ended up, as we know in this, uh, so he, this is a busy life. First of all, you got your own learning. Second of all, you got the, the, the chinuch, you know, the, your, your school principal. Then, and he had his own family. And then, uh, you know, Chesed and neighborhood. And then you've got this business, you know, where you have to go to, to, to the jail and to the leper colony, which is, again, Shalom and Asa Kabbalah Pras. It's a free. So, little by little, people start hearing about this guy. Now, I didn't, and you didn't, but the local people did. And let's put it this way. Anybody's undertaking to do this day in and day out, week in and week out, is the real thing. Okay. Uh, because somebody's looking for reputation doesn't go to the leper colony. <laughs> you understand? Um, now, here's the interesting part. In the 30s, this war among the Zionists really broke out hot because um, it just did. Uh, the head of the Ben-Gurion group, Arlazar, uh, Dr. Arlazar was murdered, and the Ben-Gurion guys blamed it on the Jabotinsky guys. It was a big trial, and there was unbelievable machlokes among the Jews, and it almost turned into civil war. And um, each side developed, got its own weapons and arms. And this is when the Irgun, which which really, I'm going to put it this way, the the official Jewish community was run by something called the the Jewish Agency, and they had an elected parliament of a certain sort of elections, Asifat uh, Nifcharim. Which that's a government within the government. They're waiting to become the government of Israel one day. That's Ben Gurion and his Hebra. And they had an army, Haganah. Well, but the Jabotinsky guy said, Well, we're not going with you. So we make our own army called Irgun's Fayilamani, the National Military Organization. Which means it's a separate militia. We hold we're the real government. Oh, the two sides hate each other. And in the thirties, a big Arab revolt broke out, the Intifada which shook the whole country. And uh, it became impossible to go from city to city and all this until the British moved in 50,000 soldiers and crushed it in the late 30s. So Palestine was cooking at that time. You know, you couldn't go to the Kotel, couldn't walk in the Arab neighborhood. There were times the British Army couldn't go to the Harbais. People don't know. It was quite a business. Now, um, in all this, so the Jabotinsky guys started up uh, shooting Arabs and things like this. If, if an Arab killed a Jew, then they would go blow up an Arab house and that sort of business, which the Ben-Gurion guys did not agree with. 
and they started getting arrested. So from the late 30s on, let's say, for example, from 1938 approximately to 1948, for those 10 years, the prisons in Israel were full of Jews. These guys are not criminals in the sense of burglars, robbers, you know, bandits, and that sort of thing. This is a political. These guys are a member of Irgun and the breakoff of the Irgun because Jabotinsky died in 1940 in the middle of the war, and there was a machlokis among the, among the Irgunists. Is the Irgun extreme enough? And those who broke away started a stern gang, Lechi. And so you have two sets of, um, what should I say, military organizations, which everybody else regarded as terrorists. And they believed in terrorism. I'm going to be clear about this. They practiced terrorism, except they said, like every terrorist in the world, the end justifies the means. We're trying to kick the British out, save, establish a Jewish state, and bring in the six million. So that's after everything. Well, you know, a lot of Jews didn't see it that way. But for our purposes, the jail is now filling up with a different type of person. This person could be very idealistic. He was caught by the British because he's a member of the Irgun or Stern Gang. Some were going to be killed, some were sent for long-term prison, and so forth. So I would regard these as elitist members, you understand? People with an ideology, with ideals, and so forth. And the type of person who joined these organizations very often came from a firm background. <clears throat> Some of them, it's a long and complicated story. Some of them remained from the head of the Irgun for a while was Mam Shafron Guy, David Raziel. You know, it's uh, weird. Uh, and later on, as you know, Menachem Begin took over. And Menachem Begin was certainly from uh, sympathizer. You get what I'm saying? Uh, so it was an interesting culture that arose over there. And now all these guys are in one time or another in jail. And here's the same guy, Irvin, who's been going since long before the Irgun and the politics started. And he's the, the the chaplain. I would even go farther. A lot of girls joined the Irgun and the Stern Gang. And then they got arrested at one point or another. And they were put in a women's prison in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, next to Jerusalem. And so Irvin started going there also. So these are like his most famous years, I would say. Between 38 and 48, I would approximately guess. In which, besides leper colony, now, he didn't get much uh, PR from leper colony. That's totally the shame of him. Uh, but the, to go to jails and do what he did before, which is try to run services, and now it's the war, Holocaust is going on, and the war against the British is going on, and the war between one set of Jews and the other Jews are going on, and there's so much hatred out there, and so much violence, and here comes the guy's the antithesis of that. And, you know, he would talk to them, and try to make care of them. I mean, not make care of them, try to make them from because that's a turnoff, you get it? But, you know, make offer his job as a chaplain. So, you know, you run davening, uh, give, give him a little bit of a, a pep talk, talk about the parsha, but in very positive ways, you understand? It's not somebody give Musa, otherwise they would turn off. Uh, and the long and the short of this, they saw he's a saint. Right? They didn't say, oh, he's a Tom Chacham, all the rest of That didn't mean nothing to them. Uh, he's a saint. Plain and simple. He loves people, loves Jews especially, no matter who you are, by Sher Husham. And obviously, you know, just to take a look at him, you realize he would prefer your Shama Shabbos. But he didn't bring it up. You know, that's not the reason he's being nice to you. It's not a tactic. You understand? It's not a shtick. It's not a Kirov thing. And so it's it's just a fascinating story. All these hard guys, like the hearts melted. They said, who's this guy that all fell in love with him? It's, um... I want to tell you, um... I came across Ari Levin in the mid-70s. Why? I never heard of him. And I'm fairly knowledgeable. But I didn't live in Israel. Uh, 
I remember maybe seeing a, a news article in the Jerusalem Post. I don't know when he died. It didn't mean anything to me. I was in the um, in the old library, the Baltimore Hebrew College, which I told was this big, well-stocked library, which nobody ever used. And uh, I remember, and this is the mid seventies after my father died, before my sister got married. So eh, around nineteen seventy-five, seventy-six, seventy-seven, something like that. And um, and I was, and I used to go up and down to I'll see what they have, you know, read this book, that book, whatever. It's like having your own uh, library. And I saw in the biography section there's this book with this uh, from-looking guy on the cover, which wasn't too common in the Baltimore Hebrew College Library. But I know they also, but they did have some from books also. They had all kinds. And so I pulled it out and it said, you know, Tzaddik in our time. That don't mean nothing to me. <laughs> you know, the title is, a, is, you know, you can't judge a book by the t- title. I don't know. And I thought, you know, it was probably got from Israel, some, uh, you know, book of hagiography and all the rest of it. But I just flipped open the book. I was reading about Menachem Begin. What the heck is this guy doing here? And then another thing with the Stern Gang. What is that doing? And I knew who these people were, you know. And what's he doing with this rabbi? And I'm sitting there for five minutes just reading story after story. So I said to myself, I'm going to take this book home. So I took the book out of the library and I checked it out in other words. And I brought it home. I remember it was a Thursday night. And it was, so at that time I was living in my, myself, my mother, and my sister. Like I said, my father passed away and my brother was out of town. So, uh, and we live in an apartment. So I brought it home. I put it on the dining room table. And, you know, my sister, my mother, you know, said, what is this? And I said, this is, this is another book I took out of the library. You know, the kind of books I used to bring home from the library, people think it's nuts, you know me. And, uh, but anyway, all I know, the book disappeared, <laughs> right? I think my mother grabbed it or something like that. I didn't see it for days and days. <laughs> and then my sister grabbed it days and days. So by the time I got to read it, it was already I had to give the book back. Eventually I got to read it. But I remember, everybody, my mother and my sister, you read the book, everybody's smiling in the face. You understand? You don't read a, 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 a book too often, just make you warm and fuzzy all over. I'm not that type. But I was, I remember I read the book I'm talking many years ago, aren't I? Right? I'm talking more than 40 years ago. And I still remember, you had a warm and fuzzy feeling just reading the book. Okay? Now, it's not an art scroll book. You see? Uh, you get a warm and fuzzy feeling. It just felt, felt good. You know, sometimes, if you read it, it's funny. You can read, uh, uh, let's put it this way. You create a bad novel or something like that. Let's say, uh, uh, let's say you could read a pornographic novel, and then afterwards you feel dirty from the experience, right? A lot of people, but it, rarely you have the other way around. You read a novel, you f- you feel better for the experience. Not a novel, you read a book, it makes you feel better, like a randomness. It's not because somebody has a mustache moose, all the rest of it. The story is very interesting, and most of them had to do, not all, not all, but. Many stories had to do with non-from people. Now, it turned out that there was a guy, Simcha Raz. He was a journalist. He was a Kippasriga guy. He wrote, I think, 50 books. He might still be alive today. Uh, but this one hit, the, you know, hit the, 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 the charts and became world famous, Ish Tzadik which they eventually translated in Tzadik our time because the true stories were true. And I tell you, I've given it, I gave the book many times to people over the years. And everybody, I know, and by the way, to a variety of people, I even gave it once or twice to people who are not Jewish. Everybody told me the same thing. That one variation, the other said, I have a warm and fuzzy feeling reading this book. You know what I'm saying? It's just, you see, just because he was such a, a wonderful person that um, they hit over there. And you see that all these people 
who were in jail and all the rest of it, like all these political types, you know, became enamored of him. I'm not going to say they all became Shomer Shabbos, because that's not true. But let's put it this way. It was a total Kiddush Hashem in that you saw the best of what a from Jew can be, which is rare. Now, that's, sad, that's a sad statement I'm making, <laughs> right? Sam Sarevel Hirsch said very famously, if all the Jews would be Yisrael Mensch, in other words, it would be the way it's supposed to be, there wouldn't be an anti-Semitism. I agree with that, but <laughs> that hasn't been the case since Moshe Rabbeinu, you know. But once in a while you meet, meet somebody, and say, this is, you know, the model of from Jews can be, and it doesn't matter how you dress, it doesn't matter what language you speak, it's the Hanhoga. And there were so many mices there, they didn't give the standard Haredi response. You know, so that, that was the interesting part of it. And uh, he therefore captured the imagination of all the Ergun and, and, and Lachi guys. Now, what that meant was that he was on the in in the Jabotinsky world. He's on the outs in the Ben-Gurion world. Get it? Now, the way the state of Israel progressed was that by 1948, the Ergun, and they killed a lot of British, and they did help in a big way to kick the British out, but in the end of the day, the state was founded by the Ben-Gurion guys, and I would say from 1948 to 1977, for 30 years, the Ben-Gurion regime... uh, made it a policy of not being gyrus, the Jabotinsky guys. Get it? Menachem Begin formed a political party, uh, you know, the Chirut, and he had a small, wasn't a large party, whatever. Uh, it was the Ben-Gurion years and Golda Meir and all the rest of it. No, it was the Mapai party. That's the party of the, uh, of the Ben-Gurion guys. They ruled the roost and they made the books and they, um, you know, ran the education uh, of the schools and they created the Israeli culture, a major portion of which was to read these other guys out of history. Uh, I'll just give you one example of many. When Israel became a state, and they said like this, we're making a pension. Anybody who died or was wounded in the Haganah in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, before the state of Israel was proclaimed, but fighting for Israel in the Palmach, said they're going to get a pension. Let's say the widow will get a pension or something like that. Uh, not a lot of money, but something. And uh, the idea was we acknowledged you were fighting for Israel before Israel existed. But if you're in the Irgun and the Lechadian, you ain't getting no money. Uh, you know, so they're just stuck there. So the guy got hurt or wounded or killed, too bad. You you, you don't count. Uh, there are many, many examples of that. And so they formed their own little world, uh, what I would call the Benachem Begin world, within the state of Israel from 1948 to, like I say, 1977. And they were the marginalized group. Uh, and they are the group... Let's, let's put it this way. And they elected our hero as a patron saint. Uh, because a lot of these guys have been in jail in tough spots. And Rabaria, you know, uh, who was not political, you know, he didn't bring guns into jail. All that. The most he did was smuggle in a letter from the guy's wife or smuggle a letter out. I mean, he didn't bring in no bombs or anything like that. Uh, I mean, you know, and they wouldn't ask him. You get it? He was too cuttish for them. They wouldn't ask him. They held him in such esteem. And um, uh, let me tell you, he was with these guys. You know, the British hanged them. You understand? I mean, you know, there, there were a lot of people like that. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole parsha of Jewish history. And let me tell you something. These guys went to the gallows singing the Hatikva. You know, they're like fearless. They mamish stark believed in this. So um, it was a dramatic time of living. At the same time, he's the principal of the elementary school. You know, you wouldn't think that your principal in, uh, in Eitz Chaim is 
you know, bringing secret letters for the head of the lechi to, you know, the guy in jail or whatever. It's, the British certainly didn't feel that way. And by the way, he also went to the women. Now remember, he's a from guy. He went to the women's jail. He didn't touch anybody, but he, he, he you know, he cried. Let's put it this way. They put their hand on the shoulder, not literally, but, you know, they could cry to him and tell him all the stories. And he, and he was the type of person, you got to read the book. He's the type of person, he would cry with you, and he meant it. You understand? Uh, imagine a girl, 19, 20, 21 years old, captured by the British for, you know, being in the Stern Gang, whatever, and then you're in a jail in the Arab neighborhood of Bethlehem, and uh, I mean, you're alone and friendless and so forth and so on, and you don't say anything Jewish. But once a week, or twice a week, this guy shows up. Uh, uh, and he didn't run a minion, it was, a, it was girls, but he ran some kind of services, they said to hell him. Again, he gave him a pep talk, he said, don't worry, God's with you, God likes you. You know, you know, the Jewish people appreciate what you're doing, things like that. One of the ladies was Geula Kohn, if that name means anything. You know, she was a Yemenite who ended up in the uh, in the Lechi, in the Stern Gang. She was a big politician later on in, in Israel years ago. And uh, uh, what do you call it? You know, she has autobiography. You can, you, you, if you Google Geula Kohn, you look at autobiography, you should read your autobiography about a girl who was in the terrorist groups. Read the chapter about Ari Levin. <laughs> She's over there. He's like an angel. You understand? And I repeat, a guy like him never touched anybody. He's a from guy. But, you know, let's put it this way. He he, he, he touched, the, I don't want don't, don't to sound cliche, but he touched him spiritually. You understand? That was a, is a, the Kesher there. And what's really funny is the Arab girls, no, because there were plenty, it's a woman's prison, so there are plenty of Arab women in the jail also. Not for terrorism necessarily in those years, but, you know, killing your husband, stealing, you know, their usual crimes. And they were always complaining. How come the Jewish girls get this guy, come this tzaddik? You know, you have to provide us with one also. If I remember the story correctly, he even went to the Arabs sometime. He was a nice person. I'm not sure exactly what he did with them, but, you know, to show that he's mocks of everybody. So I'm describing somebody that unlike we've ever done a podcast on. This is, you know, I said before, this is not a Rav. This is not Rosh Hashiva. It's not a Machaber's farm. It's not a, a Charles and Chivas guy. It's not a Darshan. It's not a philosopher. It's not a poet. So what do you call it? Right? So when I say you call it Sadak, it's 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 a niche <laughs> kind of thing, isn't it? It's a saint, right? Well, the Jewish people have their saints, but you know, um, here's somebody whose saintliness is not only being manifested in the firm world, of course he did that also. But if you tell me people where he lived, where was it, in the Shari Chesed or wherever? You know, uh, whatever those neighbors were. If you still the neighbors appreciate them, all right. But I'm talking about people who were, who were, who were separated from Yiddishkeit. Uh, they had moved past that for one reason or another, but uh, they were enamored with him. Okay? They enamored with him. Wait, let me change this. Here. Now, I have to remember where I left off. I had to go somewhere. Um, but anyway, the state of Israel came to being. Not, not in the way anybody exactly imagined it would happen. But anyway, as I said before, so this whole banging thing was like a, a sub-world, a subculture. Now, um, you know, we all know that after 1948, the politics continued. If anything, in some ways, got more intensified. Um, and, uh, you know, Ralph Cook was dead since 1935. By the way, Ralph Cook, because he liked Ari Levin, in other words, by that I mean he knew who he was, you know, if Cook is the one who made the Shidduch, 
The Ayelvin's daughter married Rabbi Yashif. In fact, Rav Kook was a Masada Kedushan. That's right. So, you know, it's a funny world. And um, the point is that there existed, especially in those years, a whole group of people, Rishalayim, you know, Tamir Chamim, they're not Zionist, and certainly not in the, you know, uh, what shall I say, a vulgar sense of the term, you know, with Ben-Gurion and all that. So, you know, obviously not. Um, but on the other hand, they're not, they're certainly not Torah cards either. You know, they hoped, as everybody still does, sooner or later Israel turned out right. You understand? Know that's why, uh, uh, you know, that's why Rabbi Yashua was on the Rabbanot, you know, and things like that. Uh, and uh, the point I would make is, there are Bari, who by 1948 was not a young man, he's in, what would that be? 1885 would be in the 60s. So, um, I mean, he got to see the state of Israel, but he saw the big periods over there. Now, he wasn't a politician, he wasn't a fighter and all this kind of business. That's not who he was. Uh, but he definitely emerged, whether he wanted to or not, as the patron saint of the Begin uh, subculture. If you're from that group, there's a whole marginalized group in society, but it wasn't a small group. They used to win 10% of the votes. I mean, the Herut used to get 14 seats, sometimes more, in the uh, parliament. So that's uh, out of 120, that's a little more than 10% of the population. Although that's a distinct minority, uh, you know, with their own world, their own newspapers, their own books, all the rest of it. And they were him like the Tzadik Yisrael, which, which was not a lie. Now, um, Nachum Beg himself, he tried again and again, you know, let's buy you a house and this and that and the other. And, you know, right? I don't want a house. I don't even want a stove. You can read the book. You know, he liked living the way he lived. And I mean, we're talking over here, somebody didn't have heat in the winter. <laughs> I don't think the American readers can understand this. And um, all I can say is that uh, he served as like the authority figure, maybe that's not the right word, the ideal figure for that whole Begin, Irgun, Lechi kind of world, which is strange because these guys were not from, many of them were pretty stark atheists. But you want to know something? And I want you to listen very close to this. I think he intuited, this is my guess, as they say, all I can ever do is share my opinion. I have the impression from what I've read, he intuited something very interesting. And Rav Kook May also was. And that is, there's two types of non from among the Chilonim. There's those, uh, and again, you have to listen close to the distinction. There are those who reject Judaism, or let, let's, let me refer to, let me say, there are those who, be, who reject from Kite and those who are turned off to it. Hear that? Now, the one who rejects it on ideological, philosophical, whatever grounds, that's one problem. Uh, but there's a ton of people out there that are not from, I'm talking about Israel now, and especially in those years, that were turned off to it for one reason or another. Maybe in their youth, maybe somewhere down the line, you know, that's, read the biographies over and over again of the big Zionist leaders and politicians and, and uh, Chalutzim and the others. And you find all the time, you know, came from a religious background or something like that, traditional background, and then for one reason or another, this turned them off, that turned them off, and so on and so forth. You know, someone is turned off can be turned on. You know what I'm saying? And the spark is there. Somebody turned off can be turned on. And But you can only do it with, you know, uh, as they say today, 
with unconditional acceptance and love and that sort of business, which doesn't usually go with the yeshiva personality because they're very critical, you know? And so um, people like Arayavid were able to move mountains and get these people, you know, to um, move closer to Judaism, although I don't suspect him of using this as a tactic. I think people really just did it because they want to make him feel good. So there are a lot of people who say like this, I'm not smoking because of Arayavid on Shabbos. I don't believe in Shabbos, I don't believe in God, but I know I want to tell him this, make him feel good. You know what I just said? I'm not smoking because I want to be able to tell him and he'll feel good about it. I want to make him feel good. That's a very high madriga. Okay? <laughs> tell you the truth, if you read the Mesilsi Sharm, it's an unbelievable madriga. Because the highest madriga Hasid is, is you want you want Hashem to feel good. <laughs> you get it? I didn't miss it. I want Hashem to feel good. Now, in the case of Hashem, that's hard because it's an abstraction, you know, you can't, uh, but but if if you find the right kind of tzaddik, that's the, the best approximation, as far as I can tell. I want to do something to make this tzaddik feel good. Because I just do. You know, I don't have any, any uh, ulterior motives or something like that. I think this is a big part of the character of Menachem Begin because of his interactions with Ari That's That's what I think. And, um, it's just a shame if I didn't live to another 10 years, see Begum become prime minister. Oh, he would have made him, I don't know what, you know, because he worshipped him, okay? He worshipped him. And uh, uh, it was just amazing. And, uh, you know, when he was prime minister, he sent money to his son's yeshiva. I mean, you know, it was, it was like, because he, you know, a, a person with the right Jewish sensitivity, you can admire a beautiful thing when you see it, right? That doesn't mean you're exotic. But you can admire beautiful things you see. I think his great accomplishment was he got so many people, I'm talking about the non from who whatever they, they could appreciate the beauty of that kind of personality and that kind of life. And so you can't make fun of from people if you if you know him, right? I can make fun of individual from people because maybe they don't listen, live up to what they say they are, and I can talk about politicians and from politicians, all the rest of it. But at least I've seen the real thing. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? You see what, what, what Judaism can produce in, in its best form. That's quite a statement I make. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about a figure who emerged um, at least among a certain portion of the population, like I say, 10% at least, at least, besides the from, so it's a big portion, uh, who really saw him, you know, as as, um, as the, the tzaddik, I hate to use that word because it sounds so cliche, but the real thing, let's put it that way, they saw the real thing. So that's uh, unusual. I can't think of anybody like that. You know, I don't think Rebbe Cook was looked at that way. He was highly admired and saw him in great terms, but people didn't have this love for him and you know this call you know th- th- this way. I I don't think so, as far as I can tell. Now I want to tell you something. They had to be in Israel. You had to live at that time and and see it. The rest of us didn't know this, as far as I'm aware. You know, he had a son here in America. I spoke about it once. But I don't think most people in America had any idea what I'm talking about. When he died, right in 1969, said this guy, who was a journalist, a Kippasrugar guy, he, he wrote this book, he said, all he did was, you know, take interviews and things like this with all these people who were still alive at that time. I'm talking about Chilonim. A lot of the book is from the Chilonim. And they were gushing about him. And you don't see these guys talking about any from Jew like that. You understand? You just don't see it. And so uh, it created a storm in the Israeli public. Let's put it this way. The Israeli public discovered him. Okay, the wide circles were a bestseller, and then when they translated English, it was like I would say, in my opinion, it would be like a bestseller in the 
in the firm world at least, right? It's a shame a book like that wouldn't get into the non from American market. It is a shame. And as I, I'll tell you again, I have shared this book in a, on occasion, you know, certain occasions I bought copies for friends, especially particularly the non from or the, you know, left-wingers or things like that. And it's always had a positive effect, right? Always had a positive effect. Now, uh, and mainly the book speaks for itself, you know. Now, um, what do you call that? Okay? And in a world which is so characterized by so much division, you know, the Jewish people are so split on everything. And even within the firm world, everything's so split, you know, this group and this group, and so on and so forth. Um, who was it? I think... <laughs> I have a friend. Uh, well, Bob, what you got? He told me, you know, this, this is a bitter story. It's a funny story. He said, a guy, I have to remember how it goes. Uh, Lebob is going He said, a guy's about to jump off the, uh, the the bridge. And someone runs over to him. He's like this. What are you doing? He says, I give up. Life stinks. Nobody loves me. I'm going to kill myself. It's all over. How can you say nobody loves you? Don't do that. No, nobody likes me. I like you. Look, you're a human being. I'm a human being. I respect you as a human being. Don't jump. By the way, you know, are you... uh a religious person? Yeah, I'm re- you're a religious person. How can you say nobody likes you? Religious people stick together. Can I ask you a question? Are you Jewish? Are you Christian? Muslim? I'm a Jew. A Jew? A fellow religious Jew? How can you say nobody likes you want to kill yourself? That's crazy. Of course I do it. Let me ask you a question. Are you a chassid or a mistake? I'm a chassid. You're a chassid. How can a chassid jump off the cliff? Off the bridge? Uh, you know, I just want to know, what kind of a chassid are you? How can a chassid jump off the bridge? How can you say nobody likes you? By the way, are you this kind of Lubavitch or that kind of I'm that kind of Lubavitch? Jump, you shake it. <laughs> so that's, that's a, a, you know, we all understand that because we're so mafurid, you know, it's all split with each other. And here's a guy that transcended that, you know? And as they say, at least the stories that I've read, uh, you know, uh, he, 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 he's not a judgmental person. You know exactly what he would like because of who he is. Get it? So let's say I was not from, and I met I live in. I don't need a, a you know a telegraph to tell me he would prefer that I put on sitters, I put on film. But he's not going to say it. He's not going to bother you. If you, he, when, if you need help, he'll help you. He, he, he likes you. You're just naturally attracted to this sort of thing. Maybe along the way, one day you put on film. Maybe not. You understand? But you know, you'll never hear a crossword. And you're not going to get hurt if you don't put on film either. You understand? Uh, that's a very high madrega. You understand? And it's, it's all too rare. And as I said before, not as a tactic, you know, because the care people worked out tactics. That's a different story altogether. That's completely different. As a real thing, um, for this reason, as I said before, you know, I wouldn't call him a rabbi, I wouldn't call him a Rosh Hashim, I wouldn't call this, but you call it tzaddik. And you tell me like this, aren't all these people tzaddik? Yeah, but, you know, this is a special kind. It's a special kind. And uh, the state of Israel needs people like this. The Jewish people need people like this. But, you know, there's, there were people at that time knocking this. If you read the book, you can see, you know, the people criticize for like, or cook, whatever. There are people knocking, there always will be people knocking this. Um, but uh, it's a shame that you, you know, that you talk about from people and you immediately have like a certain cynicism. <clears throat> you get it? It would be a nice world if there were more people like this running around. Uh, and I think it would have the, I could be wrong, you know, you never know. I think it would be have the effect of being Makar of a lot more people. But I, I really don't want to say that. 
because I'm I'm falling into the trap. You understand? When I say that, so you're immediately falling into the tactical trap. Because once you talk that language, anybody in the world will say, oh, sure, whatever works, you know. Give him a comic book, get whatever you want, as long as you start to get him to, to, to be Shomer Shabbos. What if you like a person if he's never going to be a Shomer Shabbos? What if he's never going to be a Shomer Shabbos? It's sad, but he's never going to be a Shomer Shabbos. Are you still going to like him anyway or are you going to hate him? These are ugly questions, right? And uh, we know what the answer should be, but what the, what the answer is. Well, let's put it this way. If you want what the answer should be, then you'll read up on Ari Levin. So uh, I just touched on the sketch today. Because to go into stories, why am I going to repeat what's in the book? I think everybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, go get the book Tzadik in our time. And I'm, you know me, I don't usually push books. Not like none of those types, right? <laughs> none of the art school biographies. You know, some are better, some are worse. But this is of a completely different nature as far as I'm concerned. The only problem I have is young people don't know the Israeli politics. So when they read, you know, about him and Matisio Shmulevitz or, you know, this guy or that guy, you know, they're like, who is this? And so if you're a younger person listening to this, what you need to do is get the book. It's in English, you know, get the book. And when you see a name that you don't recognize exactly, Google it. I'm being very serious. And read up who the person was. And sometimes you'd be surprised. This guy... It's close to Ari read about him, it's not somebody you would imagine. You understand? It's not somebody you would imagine. Uh, from the tactical perspective, there's no question that he's responsible for the fact, well, he, I shouldn't say responsible, it plays a big role in the way the Israeli right wing unfolded, uh, at least so far until today, in which you know it's been more sympathetic to the from. Now, there's a lot of politics involved, a lot of cynicism, and Jabotinsky himself, I repeat, was an atheist, okay, and a principled atheist, and made no bones about it. Uh, and Jabotinsky never met Ari Levin, as far as I'm aware. Uh, he was kicked out of Palestine in the early 20s. Jabotinsky was never allowed in again. But uh, but but on the other hand, I think he did appreciate what you call obviously throw. Um, there's a very nice story about Jabotinsky visited a school in Poland in the 1920s, a Zionist school, and the teacher wanted to show off. And you know, presented the class, all the rest of it, and was giving some kind of model lesson. And Jabotinsky said, You know, what do we like above all else? He said in, in Hebrew, You know, what would you like number one? And some kid got up and said, Like this, you know, Artsenu. No, that's a good guess, you know, but that's not it. Molotatenu, our homeland. No, that's a good guess, you know, it is, it, what is, what's the right answer? He's Amenu. <laughs> all right. We like above all else our people. Uh, that's a sublime notion. It's it's hard to like the Jewish people, right? It's not so easy. Let's put it this way: it's it's not hard to like people in the abstract, call you throw, but it's very difficult to like people in the uh, particular. Uh, and here's somebody who did it in the particular. That's all. So uh, as I said before, I wish I could get my kids to read it. Maybe my girls did. I don't know. Uh, but it's a shame. Um, now maybe it's a sensitivity of my generation, but I do think. Um, it could be put over in the younger generation. If not, then they need a new person to write the book in a way that would appeal to the to the kids of this generation um, because it's very different than when I was growing up. And the materialism and everything is, is, is plays a much bigger role today. And the extremism also. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But if you are, again, if you're a young person of a certain age uh, and you never read the Sadiq in our time, uh, you know, then, then do it and I'd be interested if you'll send me an email what your what your impressions were because I get a lot of emails as you know from a lot of listeners and uh, 
if you're a person that's you know not from my generation, you're hearing about Ari Levin the first time, and don't be impressed just because he's the father of Rebel Yashem. That's not the way to go. Look at the person in and of itself. Uh, and with that, uh, once again, I thank uh, my sponsors, the Lolly and Levy Friedman, and um, uh, wish everybody a good week. It's going to be a packed week. As they say, we got Shabbos Gold coming along. Uh, but you could do a lot worse than spend Pesach and reading the Tariq Artab. I think that'd be a good way to, to, to spend the time. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.